Well, in our story this morning, again, we find Jesus walking slowly beside the Sea of Galilee. And that should sound familiar because that's the same way that a passage we looked at a few weeks ago began when Jesus called his first four disciples in Mark 1, 17. But there's an important difference, okay? In the intervening time, Jesus' ministry has become public, okay? He's developed a reputation and a large following. Everywhere that he goes, large groups of people seek him out, okay? So when he calls a few fishermen in Mark chapter 1, it seems like there really weren't many other people around. But here in Mark 2, when he calls a tax collector, a large crowd is watching, and to really understand the, uh, the kingdom dynamics of this story, to understand the scandal of this story, first we need to know a little, bit, a little something about tax collectors. Okay? Notice how in verse 16, the Pharisees highlight this important detail. They ask, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Right? So you could paraphrase verse 16 When the religious scholars and ethical elites saw Jesus eating with sinners and even tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and other sinners? Tax collectors get their own special category among the worst sinners. They are rejected and despised by all respectable people. At this point in its history, Israel is under the control of the Roman Empire, and any self-respecting Jew would have absolutely hated that state of affairs. God's chosen people under the oppression of a pagan, hedonistic, foreign superpower. And tax collectors were the living embodiment of that travesty. They are sort of the walking personification of that outrageous reality of the Roman oppression. These tax collectors were Jewish men who had willingly joined up with the Roman government. They were employed by Rome in each town and region to collect taxes from their fellow Jews, all right? And it gets worse than that. We also know that the Roman tax code was highly complicated. Thank goodness those days are behind us. It was a a complicated tax code, and the Roman authorities told these collectors, here's what you have to take in for the government, and then you collect your own wages on top of that, and the amount that you take is really up to you. So if you can imagine, a complicated tax code, no turbo tax, right? And the payers don't know what the collector's commission is going to be until they walk into the office. So what do you think that these tax collectors were known for? They were known for exploiting as much as they possibly could from their own people, from their neighbors, These tax collectors would steal significant wealth for themselves. And also remember, by the way, that Jewish culture puts a premium on parties, Jewish culture puts a big emphasis on dinner parties and festivals and feasts, but when a tax collector has a party, who do you think shows up? It's only the other rejects, right? The other outcasts, the sinners, the worst sinners in the community. And so even if nothing that bad is actually going on in these parties, what do you think that the surrounding community speculated and gossiped about, right? They're not imagining a Downton Abbey dinner party, Right? This is Game of Thrones debauchery happening at these tax collector parties. Here's a collection of first century facts and quotes about tax collectors. 
Sources describe tax collectors making their daily rounds, quote, exacting payment of men with or without their consent, or as in Mark 2.14, sitting at tax stands with account books open and pens at the ready. Their, pop, their profit came from whatever they could take from their constituents. The Roman tax system depended on graft and greed, and it attracted enterprising individuals who were not averse to such means. The first century historian Philo wrote of one such man, Capito is a tax collector in Judea, and he holds the entire populace in contempt. When he started, he was a poor man, but he amassed much wealth by defrauding and embezzling the people. And listen to this. The Jewish Mishnah and Talmud register scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with criminals and thieves. A Jew who collected taxes for, was disqualified as a witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his family. And the touch of a tax collector even rendered one's house ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Now, we can even go one step further here, okay, because we know something about this specific tax collector, okay? This Levi, the tax collector mentioned in the story, is Matthew, the disciple who later on wrote the first book of the New Testament. The book of Matthew is written in excellent Greek, and it includes more Old Testament quotes and Jewish theology than any of the other gospels. And what that means is that Matthew likely had an upper-class education and a good religious upbringing, I tried this week to sort of to think of an equivalent position or person that would help us to understand this as 21st century Americans, and I couldn't really come up with a good one that really exists, but maybe if you can imagine what it would feel like if America was conquered and controlled by a foreign power, and then if a boy raised in Charlotte, raised in this very church, educated at Charlotte Christian or Covenant Day or something like that, and taught the ins and outs of financial literacy by his banker parents. Right, if that boy grew up and became a tax auditor for the enemy, and then if he pulled up in the parking lot out here this morning in his red Ferrari vanity license plate, the collector, right? And he, and he gets out of his car and he sets a table up right outside the door. And as we leave this morning, he says, hey, everybody, get in line, pay up, and you better put a little extra in on top under threat of imprisonment. What would you think of that person? Can you feel the betrayal and the hatred? Right. Now we're ready to understand what's happening here in Mark 2.13. In one corner, you have one of the greatest enemies and outcasts of respectable religious society. And in the other corner, you have someone who, rumor has it, people are starting to whisper, is the hero and the Messiah and even the king of God's coming kingdom. And at the start of this passage, the two are on an apparent collision course. And Jesus walks by Matthew's tax booth and he turns and looks at him. And you can sort of imagine the crowd is like, oh, get him, Jesus. All right? Here it comes. And Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. Matthew, come, follow me. Jesus loves to take people who everyone just assumes are on a collision course with his wrath, worthy of his rejection, and he loves to bring them alongside himself in friendship 
and in love. And then, cut to the very next scene, there's Jesus at one of Matthew's disreputable parties, sitting at his dinner table with the other major sinners, smiling, laughing, eating and drinking together, loving them, liking them. The scandal of that. This hero, this so-called Christ, isn't what respectable religious people thought that he would be. The first lesson that this passage has to teach us, and in fact, the most important lesson that this passage has to teach us, is that there is no such thing as a person who is so far gone that he or she can't come to Jesus. No one ever sunk so low or messed up so badly that Jesus refuses to be with them. I know that there are people in this room this morning who think and who deeply feel, I have gone too far off course to come back this time. I have screwed up so decisively and so severely that there is no possibility of restoration. Maybe you, like Matthew, have thought, I had every opportunity to turn out good, but I know that I'm not good. I know that I'm not all right. I've betrayed everything I used to say was important to me. Maybe you, like Matthew, like me, grew up in a religious home But in the years since you moved out, you've done things that you never thought you were capable of doing, things that if your family or your upbringing or your sweet Christian grandma knew, they would be disgraced. Maybe you you feel like your touch makes things unclean or like your word can never be trusted again, like you have exploited and manipulated others to make a quick buck like you love the comforts and the captivations of this world more than anything or anyone else. Maybe you feel like you have betrayed and rejected God himself. And if that's you, if you're aware of that reality in your heart and in your life this morning, Jesus says to you right now, just as you are, follow me. You're in the right place. Come, follow me. In this story, and through this story, Jesus walks right up to your tax booth, so to speak. He walks right into the dead center of the very context where you feel like the biggest failure and experience the most shame, and he looks at you right there with a smile on his face, and it's not a silly, exaggerated, fake smile. It is a kind, understanding, inviting smile, and he says to you, follow me. Come follow me. He meets Matthew at his tax table and he invites himself to his dinner table and ultimately he leads him to the table of the wedding feast of the kingdom of God. There is no one who is so far gone, so off course, so out of bounds that Jesus won't say to them, follow me. I want to have dinner with you and I want to bring you home. But Wait, is there, is there a but? Right. Yes, there is one exception to this statement, one caveat to the invitation of Jesus. The only person who can't follow Jesus, not because he doesn't want you, but because you're actually incapable of following him in this one condition, the only person who can't follow Jesus is the person who denies that she or he is a sinner. 
Look at the flow of this story, okay? Pay attention to kind of the trajectory of our passage this morning. Jesus walks right up to the most obviously sinful person in town, and he says, come follow me. And they end up at Matthew's house eating and drinking with a bunch of other obviously sinful people. But then the Pharisees, the religiously respectable ones, who of course have occasional lapses into minor sin, right? but they recover quickly. Okay. There's, they, they, they have sinned, but certainly they're not capital S sinners like the people sitting at this table, right? And their good works outweigh their bad ones. The Pharisees ask a question, and it seems pretty clear that it's not a genuine question so much as it is an accusation, a, a how dare he. They say, why does this Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in response, Jesus says one of the most important things that he ever says in the whole Bible. Verse 17, it's a verse to underline and to memorize, to tattoo onto your heart. Jesus says, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. The kingdom of God will not be populated by self-righteous people. It will be populated by forgiven people. And Jesus didn't come to recruit the well-qualified. He came to be a doctor to the seriously sick, a spiritual oncologist to serious sinners. And so here's the critical question. Where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see yourself in this story, are you at the table with the very worst sinners and Jesus, or are you standing on the outskirts of the party, outside of the party, saying, I'm not that bad? Where are you in this story? Where are you at this party? Think about how Jesus' statement in verse 17 would have confronted every person in the room. To the sinners and the tax collectors, to Matthew and his disciples, and to me and you, Jesus is saying, yes, you are a major sinner, and we're not going to pretend like you're not. And as you follow me, as we go, we're going to be continually honest about that reality. But to the religious elite, to the self-righteous, Jesus is basically saying, I have no interest in engaging with you on false premises. If you think that you're healthy and righteous, you're actually incapable of knowing me and following me. I'm gonna put it another way. In verse 17, Jesus is saying, if you think that you're all right, that maybe you need an occasional boost, an occasional reminder, a soft redirect, and you come to Jesus on that premise, you won't understand what he's about, much less will you really be able to follow him. But if you come on the honest premise of your desperate need for major mercy and miraculous healing, then you're ready to follow, to really follow, to really walk with him. Notice, by the way, okay, this is important. Jesus is saying, we're going to be honest about the fact that you're sinners, but do you get a sense that anybody at the party, anybody at the table with Jesus is experiencing shame from him, right? It's like, we're going to be honest about this, and I still like you. I love the person that you are right now, and we're gonna transform you into something better. 
He doesn't remind us because he wants us to experience shame. He only uses conviction to teach us how to follow him more closely and more dependently. Jesus didn't walk up to Matthew's table and say, hey, let's get an appointment on the books for next Wednesday and see if we can't get you back on the right track. Nor did he say, here is a set of religious principles and rules. Start living by these and you'll be okay. It seems like Matthew already knew the rules very well. And he still ended up in this mess of his own making, which means apparently sending him to Christian school didn't keep him from becoming a sinner. Jesus says, follow me moment by moment, day by day, and together we will go on a journey that is much more difficult and much more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. He says, I forgive you, I love you, I will always be with you, now come follow me. How can Jesus say that? How is it possible that the holy king of the kingdom, that God incarnate, could be like this? How can he forgive and love and like severe sinners and betrayers and exploiters like Matthew and me and you? Well, think about this. A minute ago, we said that tax collectors were despised and rejected. But you know Isaiah 53.3 says about Jesus that he became despised and rejected by men like someone that people turn their face away from in disgust. He was despised. We said that tax collectors were lumped into the same category as criminals and thieves. But do you remember who Jesus was categorized with as he hung on the cross? He was between two thieves, between two criminals. And he died with forgiveness on his lips for them. The reason that Jesus can forgive the severest of sinners is because he identified with us. He followed us into sin and death so that we can be identified with him and we can follow him into righteousness and life. Do you see that when you deny that you're a sinner, you deny that the death of Jesus was for you and in so doing you deny that the forgiveness and the righteousness and the resurrection and the eternal life and the love and the kingdom of Jesus are also for you. But when you respond to Jesus' call to follow him with honesty, with bolder and deepening vulnerability about your sin, you actually get mercy and grace and love and life and Jesus himself. All right, let's conclude with this, okay? I think that one of the main ways that we'll know that we believe the gospel, one of the ways that you can know that you're really following Jesus is when it starts to transform, when Jesus starts to change the way that you relate to other sinners, Do you notice in this passage when the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples why he hangs out with sinners so much, why he spends so much time with tax collectors and sick, needy, sinful people? The disciples don't ever give an answer, at least not in this passage, right? And I sort of imagine them kind of mumbling and stumbling over their words, trying to get some sort of defense or explanation about Jesus out. I mean, what do you... What do you think that they thought when Jesus recruited Matthew to be a part of their crew? Like, Jesus, you know who this guy is. This is not the person that we want to launch a movement. 
right? It was cool when you came along and you talked to some fishermen and you said, hey, I want to make you fishers of men. It's not cool when you come along and talk to a tax collector. This is an exploiter, a betrayer of people. Jesus, we don't want him in the group. But what's going to happen is that over the course of the next few years, as they follow Jesus in the context of vulnerable, honest community, Jesus is going to dig into each one of their particular sin issues in turn. And as they follow Jesus, they're going to be honest and vulnerable and messy about their specific sin struggles, and they are going to see Jesus forgive and restore over and over and over again. Even when he hangs on the cross, still forgiving. Even when he rises from the dead, still restoring. Right? And that transforms them. And if you follow Jesus, it will transform you too. One of the other disciples that Jesus calls is this guy that we don't know very much about, except that the Gospels identify him as Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, and the Zealots were basically a Jewish extremist group. Right? The Zealots believed that it was an affront to God, it was an offense to God to give a Roman tax collector even a single penny, and that to submit to Rome in any way was disobedience to God. And they even believed that it was uh, allowable, permissible, and even necessary to use violence to throw off the Roman oppressor. And Simon is one of these zealots, and then Jesus comes along and he says, hey, Simon, the zealot, I want to introduce you to my friends, to Matthew, the tax collector. I want you guys to be in the same community group with me, <laughs> right? The only way that they could learn to love one another is as each of them came to believe the worst sinner at the table is me, and Jesus loves me, and he likes me. And he loves and likes these other sinners too. He loves us very much. Right? They learn to say the way that Paul learned to say in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When I lived in Beirut, with Campus Crusade, we would go onto these college campuses and we would try to meet students and talk to them about Jesus. And I remember we, went, we met this guy that I really liked. Right, this guy, he liked to play basketball like me. We liked to eat at all the same restaurants. He was kind of interested in talking about Jesus. And we hung out with this guy a few times, really enjoyed spending time with him. And then at one point, he was like, hey, I wanna take you guys to one of my favorite restaurants. And, um, and we're like, okay. And, and he's, he, he's like, I, I'll, I'll pick you up in my car. Let's go eat at this restaurant, right? And we get in the car with him. And he starts talking, and he starts talking a lot about Hezbollah, right? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm in Hezbollah. I'm a member of Hezbollah, which if you, is a political group in Lebanon. It's on the recognized terrorist group list here in the U.S., right? And then we start noticing he's driving us into this part of the city that we have been told you are absolutely never allowed to go there, right? And he's like, I'm in Hezbollah. Let me show you where we park the tanks, right? And he literally showed us, right? And then we go and we sit down and we eat at this restaurant. And I remember having the thought, I, I think I'm going to die, right? <laughs> and then I remember having the thought, I think that Jesus would probably be eating with this guy too. And then we went to a movie theater in the middle of the Hezbollah like sort of area of the city and we watched The Fast and the Furious, right? 
And, and I, by the grace of God, I thought to myself, this guy is just like me, and I would be just like him, except that Jesus said, come follow me. And I wanted to say to him, come follow Jesus with me. And so if somebody with a Biden bumper sticker or a Trump bumper sticker parks next to you in the parking lot out there, or if somebody brings up, somebody who brings up right-wing conspiracy theories or left-wing critical race theories uncomfortably often in your community group, or if a transgender person or an extremist Muslim who shows some small interest in Jesus comes into your life somehow, would you say to them, would you say, why would I eat with this sinner? Or would you say, hey, fellow sinner, come follow Jesus with me. I'm the worst one that I know, and somehow he still likes me. Let's follow him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your love for Matthew was true centuries ago, and we thank you that your love for us is true this morning. We thank you that you met him in the midst of his rejection and his shame, his betrayal and his sin, and you said, come follow me, and you led him to the party, to the dinner table, to the feast. And I thank you this morning that you're saying to me, come follow me. I know your sin, I know your shame, I still love you, come follow me. Would you help each one of us to hear the call of Jesus this morning to follow and would you give us by the power of your spirit the wisdom, the humility and dependence to take one little step of following today and this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.